You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. All right, so we are going to answer some questions. So last week we answered a bunch of questions. We're going to finish up uh, answering those questions, and then next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that is Easter, and before Easter it's Good Friday. So lots of stuff that's happening at Meadowbrook, and, uh, but, but I'm excited about these questions. There's, all these questions are really good. So let's start off with the first one. Uh, what does the Bible say about tattoos, and is it okay for Christians to get them? So I'm going to answer that question. And, uh, and typically, those who, who, who say, no, the Bible, you shouldn't get a tattoo, it's immoral to get a tattoo, they'll go to this verse in Leviticus. So let's go to that verse. Leviticus chapter 19. Oh, go back. Leviticus 19. There we go. Verse 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, what's going on with this verse? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. Chapter 19 of Leviticus is telling the Hebrew people how how they are to live as they enter into the land of Canaan. You know, and how they are to be set apart from the rest of the people groups. Uh, the way they would, like so in, in Canaan, the way they would mourn their dead and they worship different gods is they would cut themselves. They would lacerate themselves. God said, you are not to do that. I am the God of the living. And, uh, and I am your God. And so you honor me with your lives. You don't cut yourself. And then, uh, then he goes on to say, or... Tattoo yourselves. Literally, uh, you can read tattoo marks, or I think the King James says markings because, um, you know, the, the kind of tattoos we think of today, they, they wasn't really in the minds of those who I think interpreted or translated the King James Bible. But literally, it's tattoo marks. You shall not mark yourselves, for I am the Lord. Well, what's that talking about? Well, in Egypt, we do know this uh, historically that in Egypt the women would tattoo uh, parts of their body that represented fertility as a way of honoring, honoring and appeasing the fertility gods. And God was saying, basically saying, I am the God of the living. You're not to dedicate your body to other gods. You dedicate your body to me. So that's the context of this verse. Now, is there any other verse in the Bible that uh, talks about tattoos? I don't really think so. Um, not that I'm aware of. But this verse is not talking about getting pierced, right? So it's not saying you shouldn't get pierced, and uh, it's not saying you shouldn't get tattoos. Now, in answering that question, I have more to say. <laughs> uh, so does that mean that you should run out and get tatted up and get all kinds of piercings? Maybe, maybe not, right? So, so there's this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that says this, uh, and the context of the verse is Paul was addressing sexual immorality in the Corinthian church, but it's applicable to how we treat our bodies, you know, period. It says, you are not your own. He's speaking to Christians. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This, you know, your body uh, <clears throat> is a gift. It is, the Bible calls it a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is sacred because God has gifted you with life. And uh, one day he's going to resurrect 
your body if you're a Christian. He's going to resurrect my body. He's going to give us a new body. And how we treat our bodies on this side of eternity, we should take care with them. Like we should care for our bodies uh, for his glory. <clears throat> you know, so Paul's getting at that. Um, do I have a problem with tattoos? It depends on the tattoo, I guess. But do I have a problem with the concept of somebody getting a tattoo? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, the church I pastored in, in Colorado, we had a guy who attended Monsieur Day Fellowship who was a tattoo artist. I mean, that was his livelihood. That was what he did. And he did some really amazing things. Like, he was super gifted. Uh, but what I will say is that you should use wisdom. I think we're called, as Christians, to live a life of wisdom, to take what we know of the Scriptures, apply it to our lives, and uh, to have the Word of God shape our conscience. And for some people, getting a tattoo may go against your conscience for whatever the reason, and you shouldn't get a tattoo. Um, but you should also not condemn the other person who is getting it, who did get a tattoo. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, is, and if your conscience isn't bothered by getting a tattoo, then my recommendation to you would be, if you're going to get a tattoo, get one that doesn't dishonor Christ or dishonor God or misrepresent what it means to be a son or a daughter of the God of all creation. Does that make sense? So anyway, that's my answer for tattoos. I promised you I would answer it. Whoever, I, can, I don't even remember who asked this question, but I'm about probably like seven months late. So, but I, I got to it. I finally got to it. And it wasn't that I was afraid to answer. It just, just didn't get to it. Um, all right, next question. Oh, oh, before we go to the next question, I wanted to, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, the point is, that, is this. When Jesus comes again, we're told that on his robe, and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, is it written on his, his skin? Because Jesus still has a, 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 he has a body, a resurrected human body. Is it written on his person? Or is it written on garments that he's going to be wearing? I don't know. I would not use that verse as a proof text for why you should get a tattoo, though. Okay? But it's there. It is there. Okay, question number two. <clears throat> I figured I'd start with the, first, the easiest questions first. Is the Daniel mentioned in Ezekiel 14, verse 14, the same one that wrote the book of Daniel? If yes, what else do we know about Daniel's early life? Now, if you're like fairly new to Meadowbrook, then you probably are not aware that I preached through the book of Daniel. Uh, so I would encourage you, you can find those sermons online, you can find the manuscripts online. We spent lots of weeks in the book of Daniel uh, the reason why I, I thought this was a good question because it gives me an excuse to say uh, this. In light of the first question about tattoos, if you want to find an example of an individual who was godly, surrounded by a pagan culture who didn't share his ideologies, um, read the book of Daniel. Like Daniel handles, uh, handled himself with grace and conviction and he, on certain occasions, was very firm in, in what he was willing to do and not willing to do to, to honor the God of all, you know, the God of Israel. And he is a really great example of how we can handle ourselves, you know, as followers of Jesus in a culture that does not share our worldview. So I just wanted to point that out. All right, question number three. <clears throat> This is a really good question. 
What would happen to me and my fellow believers in the armed forces if we kill someone in combat? So, uh, that, that can be a very complicated question. That could be a compl- it, can be a, it, it could receive a very complicated answer. Here's what I'll say. Uh, we're aware of passages in the Bible that forbid the taking of another life, right? So Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's going back to the whole, you know, the human body, uh, human beings, as a creature, as a species, we, are, we bear the image of the living God, we stand above the rest of creation, uh, you know, if, if you sat through the sermon series, Christians say the darndest things. You know, I talked about that, that one day we'll, our, our bodies will be resurrected, one day we'll judge angels, like we, we bear the image of the living God, like all those things. Uh, so the Bible has very, uses very strong language about the taking of another human life. One of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not, what? Murder, right? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your what? Your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I'll be preaching a sermon series in the not-too-distant future. It's the next big sermon series I, I will be preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll unpack that more when we get there. But uh, another one. In fact, when we, when we celebrate Good Friday, I hope that you come to our Good Friday service. We're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to uh, reflect on the death of Christ on the cross. But, but moments before Jesus was betrayed and, and uh, then crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter was with him. And uh, we're told that Peter, you know, he, he had a sword. Like, like if, if what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter and uh, the servant of the high priest happened today, Peter would have had like a concealed carry permit with, you know, with whatever, not a sword. Like, that's the equivalent here. And it was Peter's sword, and he took his sword, and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And what did Jesus say? He said to Peter, put your sword into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so Jesus said that. Now, what about war? Um, we read throughout the Old Testament of, uh, of uh, in places where God told Israel, in fact, commanded Israel to drive out certain inhabitants of the land, certain people groups that were in the land of Canaan. So I want you to drive them out. And, uh, and even told them to be violent, violent about it. Uh, endorsing war and battle and the taking of, uh, of life. There's a passage in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 9. There are a lot of passages, but the Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, that where, where God explains why, why he wanted Israel to drive out certain people groups in the land. And this is what he said. The words will be on the screen. It says, 
Do not say in your heart, Israel, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, those people groups, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, God uses nations and he uses governments to discipline and to judge nations and governments. And, he, and in, all throughout the Bible we see this, he even used wicked nations to judge wicked nations. You know that? Like, like we, even with Israel, when, when God disciplined Israel, he used Babylon as an empire to discipline his people in the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and had them forcibly removed from the land because of their idolatry and, the, and their disobedience before the Lord. So God will use government, the, the agency of government, to judge other nations. Um, there's a passage in Romans chapter 13, which is a really interesting passage because, because Romans, the book of Romans was written most likely while Nero, Emperor Nero, was unleashing his reign of terror on, the church, on Christians. And it's in that context Paul wrote Romans. And in Romans chapter 13 he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So therefore government is instituted by God. Uh, therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that, that's the, the, the purpose of government, and uh, that's why we have laws in the land. And even Rome had really good laws. And even Rome was used by God to suppress evil. You, you, you know that, right? Like God uses government to suppress evil in the world. And, uh, and even unjust governments and even corrupt governments he's able to use to suppress evil. Our world is jacked up, it's upside down, it's a mess, but it's not as evil as it could be. God, God uses nations to, to judge other, other nations. He uses government to discipline um, and, and, to, and to hold people in their, in their place. We're not, like society is not as wicked as, as it could be. And uh, I, I so there, there's that. So how about the person who is called into some form of battle or war that involves the taking of another life? Well, I, I think there are several factors that, that come into play with that. 
wine does it go against your conscience? If you're in the military and your conscience is bothered by the prospect of, of having to take the life of another human being, should you be called into a conflict, then you must obey your conscience. Um, that there is a structure of authority in our lives, and the one who holds ultimate authority is God. And so if government asks you, or if there are laws in our nation that, that require you to do something that goes against the word of God or goes against your conscience, then you must charitably, graciously, I mean, kind of the same word, and with care, disobey. If your conscience isn't bothered by the, by the prospect of being used by your government to, uh, in, in, for the purpose of conflict, then I'll, I'll say this. The, pers- the soldier who's, who, who's required to take the life of another soldier of an opposing nation versus the murderer, they're two different, I think those are two different types of people most of the time. Right? Now, what's happening in Ukraine? Like Russian soldiers obeying orders to, to kill civilians and to target buildings with civilians in, that's murder. And, that's, and so we have laws that nations are supposed to uh, adhere to that prohibit such things and the use of su- such weapons. But at the end of the day, um, it is, you know, the, the, the taking of a human life is a serious, serious thing. Even with capital punishment, you know, does, does the Bible uh, endorse capital punishment? I believe it does. But even with that, great care and, and needs to be taken in, in the exercise of that. Uh, and then and, oh, the, the, the passage on conscience is Romans chapter 14, by the way. If you're, if you're looking for a passage, it says this, that, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. It's talking about eating things that were sacrificed to idols, but this is applicable to every area of life. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so I, I, you, God gave you a conscience, and if you're reading the scriptures and, and it's informing your conscience, then you, you need to listen to your conscience. And then the hopeful thing uh, that I see in the Bible, I don't think I have the words on the screen, but it's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, if you're taking notes. Uh, it says this about Jesus. He will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's coming a day where there'll be no war. There's coming a day where every instrument used to kill will be transformed and redeemed to be an instrument that brings forth life. So I, I leave you with that. All right, next question. When I die as a Christian, it is said that we go immediately to heaven, but there are other verses in the Bible that seem to suggest that we will not experience eternal life until Jesus returns and resurrects our bodies. So when do I go to heaven? Immediately after death or after my resurrection? Yes. <laughs> There you go. Uh, yes, yeah, no. Let me explain. <clears throat> the Bible teaches 
that for the Christian, the moment you breathe your final breath and you die, you are immediately brought before the presence of God. Not your body, but your disembodied spirit or soul. I think spirit and soul are the same thing in the Bible. So, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The context here is suffering and, and death. So if my body fails, my, my hope is, to, is that I'll be present with the Lord. Now, heaven, and I've, I've talked a lot about heaven even since I've been here, three and a half years I've been the pastor. Uh, the, the Bible teaches us that, that that place, heaven, where our disembodied soul, spirit goes to, that's temporary. The end game or the end goal here, or what God's planning for you, the, 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 the point of salvation is not just your, your disembodied soul is, is in heaven. The, the, the goal of salvation is that your disembodied soul will meet up with a resurrected body that God will do for you and bring the two to one, and, and, and then he'll resurrect this sin-cursed earth in the same manner, and we will run through fields on, a, on planet earth. We will have physical, eternal bodies that will not get sick, will not grow old, will not be affected by the curse of sin. That's the goal of the gospel. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel, uh, part of the hope of the gospel, and that is the goal of salvation. Right? So, so I, that's why I say yes to both, of the, to both the, the, the question. When you die, if you're a Christian, in the presence of the Lord. When you die, if you're not a Christian, your disembodied soul will uh, be judged and you will spend um, a period of time in, in a type of hell that Jesus describes as a place of utter darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then there will be a resurrection. That resurrection will include uh, the redeemed, that is, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, you know, all God's people. And then there will be a resurrection also of the, uh, of the unredeemed, of those who've died in their sins. And we were, that's described for us in Daniel chapter 12 and also Revelation chapter 20. And so the redeemed will inherit life, and then the unredeemed will be cast into the lake of fire. And uh, it says that's where the devil will, be, will go, the, the Antichrist, and, and it's a horrible place. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of passages that, that talk about the resurrection. Here, I'll just, if you're taking notes, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read it. Also, you can read Daniel chapter 12. It talks about the resurrection. All, this, all the verse references are in my, in my notes that will be on the website later this week. All right, question number five. This one is a really good question. Uh, it's a really good question because I know a lot of people are asking it. And so, here we go. How do you explain the sovereignty of God and the fact that Satan is the God of this world? I know that in the end, God wins, but in the meantime, we are in a battle. God doesn't always win in our battles, like cancer, disease, death, etc., but does in the future. This does not diminish the goodness of God as he is always, or as he always is good towards us, but he doesn't always get his way. So that was a question that was submitted 
along with a few statements. <laughs> and uh, so I'm planning on answering it. Along with that question was an attachment to a devotional that this person read, uh, written by a fellow by the name of Dutch Sheets, who was the founder of Give Him 15. And I didn't read the devotional part that came with the question until yesterday. So uh, this is what he says. I'm not reading this because I agree. I'm reading it so you can see it. Uh, this is not the whole thing, everything that he said, but this is, this, is the, uh, this is the meat of what he said. And the context of this is what he, this is what he said. He said, um, he said that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, is his authority over all things, but does not mean that he controls all things. There are certain, certain things that are outside of his control. That's what this guy apparently believes. I went onto his blog and checked it out. And so this is what he wrote. I'll have to read it from here because that's blurry for me. Uh, a read through the Bible and a tour of history easily dispels this erroneous belief. What erroneous belief? That God is sovereign over all things, which means that he also uh, has, a, has control over all things. He calls that an erroneous belief. Um, God's will is never for Satan to accomplish his stealing, killing, and destroying. Never. As believers, we have a part to play in God's victories, turnarounds, and the working together of, of things for our good. They do not occur simply because he desires them to, nor do they occur for us just because we are Christians. Actions, prayers, and decrees, faith, endurance, obedience, and more are necessary in order for us to receive the fulfillment of God's will and promises. This is why Satan tries to wear down the saints through discouragement, hope uh, def deferred, confusion, and more. He cannot stop God unless he stops us. He, speaking to the Christians, by the way. He cannot defeat God but he can at times defeat us and thereby thwart God's will. So he tries to make us weary and cause, uh, and cause us to lose heart. He also endeavors to distract us through the cares of life, busyness, and, as we said in the beginning of this post, by giving us a false sense of assurance through a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. That made me angry when I read that. Um, and the reason why is, in the blog, he starts off by saying, I read the Bible from cover to cover, and this is what the Bible teaches. I will say, before I answer this, I will say, and I say, to, I say it about me too, anything you hear me say, anything you read, measure it against the Word of God. Don't assume that it's true because somebody wrote it on a blog or that you heard it on Sunday morning from somebody standing in front of you. Measure it against the Word of God. Make sure it jives with the Word of God. So here's my, here's my answer to that. For God to be infinitely sovereign, because if God is God, he must be infinite in every way. Infinite is complete, full. Every, right. For God to be infinitely sovereign, he must always get his way. To be infinite, God must be complete, whole and without part. Theologians call this the simplicity of God. That means that he is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, he is um, omniscient, all-knowing, all um, 
He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. He's also good. He's also uh, eternal. He's also uh, love. He's also grace. He's also just. He's all those things in equal part. And not one of his attributes is in conflict with the other. He is not Shrek, you know, Green Shrek, who describes himself, I'm like an onion, I have layers. God does not have layers. He is God, and he's infinitely perfect. Uh, his goodness, his holiness, his love, his justice, grace, mercy, wrath, uh, are his in infinite measure. I know this is kind of deep stuff, but I just want you to hear this. And then you come to passages, and this is just one of many passages, Isaiah 46. Um, let's read this together, ready? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What is he saying there? Yeah, that's the definition of sovereignty. And now there are other places in the Bible. We're going to look at some stuff, but I, I want to break this down. There are four things that that Isaiah 46 is saying about God and his sovereignty. One, that only God, God alone, that's it's explicit, God alone declares the end from the beginning. God alone accomplishes all his purposes. God alone brings to pass what he has spoken. And like number two, God alone does, he just doesn't accomplish it, he does all that he purposes. Um, some people call... Theologians call this the decree of God. Um, he does what he wills to do. So for Mr. Sheets to suggest that God's plans are dependent on his creatures is to say that his sovereignty is not infinitely perfect. And therefore, not able to accomplish what he wills all the time because his plan is somehow, somehow dependent on my obedience or my actions or the actions of mankind. Uh, one of the sermons I preached in the series, Christians Say the Darndest Things, I addressed the statement, everything happens for a reason, which I, it was a play on words. And I, that was a fun one for me because I, I was like, yeah, and no. Like, there's... And so I fleshed that out, and we, we, uh, I said, you know, basically depends on what you mean by uh, by that statement. I said that God, a sovereign God, cannot coexist in a universe where karma, luck, or chance exist. We looked at the life of Job in that sermon, who suffered the death of his children, the loss of his income and the, eventually the deterioration of his own health. All of what Job suffered came about because Satan asked permission to touch him. Like Satan approached him, and Job is a book of poetry, and I get that, and there's language that's used in Job uh, as poetic language, so it's colorful. 
And there are things that are repeated through Job, but the, author, the, the authority of God's word in Job is just as authoritative as reading the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John, Gospel of Matthew, any of the epistles. But uh, Job suffered. And, and so Satan approached God. And why did he approach God? Because he needed permission to touch God's servant. And so God said, you could take everything that he owns, but you can't touch him. That was the first engagement that, that was had between Satan and, and God. Because and, Satan believed that he could get Job to curse God. And so he did. So, I mean, Job didn't curse God, but Satan touched him, or touched the stuff. His family died, except for his wife. He wasn't really helpful <laughs> through the process. Uh, he, lost, he lost his income, or source of income. Uh, he, he lost a tremendous amount of stuff, all within the same day. And then Satan said, well, he didn't curse you, but, but I bet you I can get him to curse you if uh, I touch his health. And so God said, you can touch his health, you just can't take his life. Well, why, why would Satan approach God and ask those questions? Because I said this before, Satan is on a leash. He is not sovereign. <laughs> he is on a leash. And he, and he is only permitted to act within the borders of God's sovereign will. Now, Satan has a will, and he's evil. But he can only exercise that will within the, 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 the borders of God's sovereign will will and decree. And the same is true for you, by the way, and me. We all have a, the freedom to choose. We all have a will. But that will is, is limited to the sovereign will of God um, because he's governing the universe. And he's able to use your decisions and, and uh, the decisions that others make and, and turn that all around in a redemptive way. And the stuff that happens to you, like as it happened to Job, God's able to turn that around in a redemptive way. And so Job suffered all, all these things. And then and at the end of Job, or towards the end of Job, in Job chapter 42, verse 2, this is what he said. Now, so we looked at a verse in Isaiah, a few verses in Isaiah, and now we, I, I pointed out um, you know, Job as an example. And, and here Job said in chapter 42, verse 2, let's read this together. Ready? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What? <laughs> Right. That's why I say, you know, when you read something, just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's true. Measure it against the Word of God. Uh, it, I think sometimes people say things, like pastors and theologians, say certain things in an effort to get God off the hook. That somehow we have to rescue Him morally. The, when bad things happen. Or like when we read things in the Bible, like when God tell, told uh, Saul, I believe it was the Melekites, I want you to wipe out everybody, even women and children. That's a whole other sermon. <laughs> um, some of you might even lose sleep over that. But like we feel like we have to get God off the hook. God is big enough to handle himself. And, and, and so when we try to do that, we, find that we wind up in theological trouble and, and, and gravitate towards doctrinal error. And what, what Mr. Sheets said uh, is error to suggest that 
that God's plan, his will could be thwarted based on what I do or don't do is hopeless. Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty messed up. And God is bigger than my, my stuff, my mess, and he's able to turn it around. And even, even though, we'll look at one other thing Job said, um, in Job chapter 10, he said this, he said, you know, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love. Your care has preserved my spirit. Meaning, God, you, you are the author of my life, and everything around me is because, is because you've allowed this in my life. And not just Job's words should we, should we t- you know, take on this point. There are, there are other passages in the Bible. Psalm 103. Let's read this together. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Here's an, another one. Let's go to the next one. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Ready? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And then uh, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. Let's read this again. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. You don't have to read this one, but Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does, who does? God. God does, according to his will, among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He even governs the sparrows when they die and if they live. And then Peter, this is, this is like one of the more important ones I want to point out to you. So Peter, you know, he had a habit of st- sticking his foot in his mouth, right? In the Gospels. During Passover, the, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. What did Peter say? Not me. Even if they kill me, I'm not betraying you. And then what happened? He betrayed him. Jesus told him, he said, you're going to betray me three times. Before it's morning, you're going to betray me three times. And that's exactly what happened. But then, after Jesus rose from the grave and restored and appeared to the, the disciples and more, he restored Peter to, you know, back to fellowship. Uh, when, when the day of Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit descended on all those who were gathered in the upper room, all those who, who were followers of Jesus, Peter preached the sermon in Acts chapter 2. This is part of that sermon. I'd encourage you to read it. But he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, 
So Peter's speaking to this crowd of people who probably, many of them, may have been there uh, when Jesus was being crucified. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is it saying there? It's saying that God's will and his determination was that Jesus be crucified. The people who crucified him uh, were guilty for an evil act, but God used their evil to accomplish his good. That's what's being said there. And it goes on to say, um, God raised him up, loosening the, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So outside of the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and God you know, was able to even use the evil intentions of people like Pilate and the people who cru- were, you know, screamed out crucify, um, that God was able to turn that around for his redemptive purposes. H- here's the point. He's still doing that today. And he could take your disease and your cancer and all the, the bad stuff that's happening in the world. It, that's not outside of God's will. Like, it's, it's not outside of his sovereign reign. He didn't look at your cancer and say, whoops, I missed that one. I should have caught those mutating cells in you. Or he, he didn't look at, you know, the, the, the death of, of, of your loved one and say, oh, missed that. He is sovereign over all of it, and he's able to take even the most evil of things and turn it around for his redemptive purposes. Your disease, your, 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 your loss of a job, your, your, you know, the evil that you suffered at the hands of somebody else, God is able to turn that around, and, and it is not beyond his sovereign will to do so. I would not be able to sleep at night if... Uh, if I knew that God was not sovereign. Because you know what that means? He's not God at all. He is sovereign. And he doesn't yield his sovereignty. <laughs> he is sovereign. And, and, you know, that Romans passage, let's go to Romans chapter 11. That Romans, so Romans, again, in the context of a, a very evil emperor, uh, Paul wrote this, but he wrote Romans chapter 11 after he wrote Romans chapter 8. God works all things for the good of those who love him. He, he, he wrote that after uh, he wrote Romans chapter 9. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He made some vessels for honorable use, some vessels for, vessels of the, uh, uh, for dishonorable use. He wrote, the, he wrote 11, chapter 11 after he wrote chapter 10. How then will they hear without a preacher? Who shall we send you know, to, to, to go? Like, uh, the, the people need to hear the gospel, and God has chosen to use people like you and people like me to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world, and he's going to do it. That's what Romans chapter 10 tells me. That, um, then he wrote Romans chapter 11, and this is how he concludes it. Let's read this together. Ready? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. 
Here's what I'll say to that. And then I got one final question, and I got one simple answer to that final question. So we're almost done. God always gets his way. He never has a bad day. He never is frustrated. He, is, he gets angry, but that's not the same as being frustrated. To be frustrated is when you don't get your way. He is never frustrated. Listen, he never has a plan B. It's always plan A. God is working out his will with purpose and even uses the evil in our world to accomplish his good purposes, period. Regardless of what happens in your life. And you can go, and you can go you know, to him, even though you might not understand everything that's happening, and under, but know that he is good and somehow he's turning this around. And you might not see it in your lifetime, but he's turning it around. Final question, and I got a very quick answer to this. How can I come to terms with the unknown? Um, the only way you're going to come to terms with the unknown is that you're not in control. <laughs> you're not in control. But there is a God who is sovereign and is. And he is good. He is infinitely good. He doesn't need to get better at being good. He is good all the time. There's this passage in Nahum, Old Testament little book in the Bible, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. It's sandwiched, this verse is sandwiched between statements about God's judgment but this is what it says. Let's read this together. Ready? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. God, I thank you that you are a good, sovereign God. And you are for our good. You are for us and you're not against us and uh, your people, that is. And if there's anyone in this room who has not yet placed their faith and trust in you, that they will hear these words, that there is salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that you, O oh God, raise them, your son from the grave, that all who believe that will be saved. And for the rest of us, God, it's good news. It's good news that you are a God who's not like Shrek. <laughs> you are not an onion. You don't have layers. You are all who you are in infinite measure, and there's no conflict within you you are perfect in every way. And for those who have placed their faith and trust in your son, you call us sons. You call us daughters with all the rights and privileges of being a child of the God of all creation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.